as I as I started thinking about what to write for a lesson on our hospitality unit, um, I struggled at first because it seems so simple that I didn't want it to be unnecessarily repetitive. When we think of hospitality, right, we think of let's have people over to our house and let's entertain them, let's make some food, and let's just go through those motions. Um, and in some sense, hospitality, hospitality really is that simple. Hospitality is indeed simple. And yet, there is also a depth to this topic that surpasses that simplicity. So while the action of hospitality may remain as obvious as it did at the start of tonight, um, I hope that this lesson helps you perform hospitality by equipping you with a little bit of a deeper understanding as to the why behind hospitality and how it fits within the historical redemptive picture of what God is trying to do in humanity. Like when I have people over to my house, am I doing it, you know, just to do it and just have people over and feed them? Or am I doing something bigger? Am I do, participating in something bigger than myself? The, the book that we're reading for this unit highlights one particular verse, almost as like a, a thesis verse for this book. Um, Romans 15, 7 is the verse that they highlight. I think that was scary. Yeah, 7. yep, Romans 15, 7. So they, they put just this blanket verse of welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. And initially, I honestly had questions regarding whether or not that verse was a solid verse to kind of base their entire argument on. But as I dug into this verse and the surrounding verses, I've become relatively convinced that not only is this verse a solid verse by which we can base hospitality on, but also the placement of Romans 15.7 shows the part that hospitality has to play within God's redemptive economy. So let's begin reading Romans chapter 15 in verse 1 and 2 here. Actually, let's start in verse 2. Now, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The context here is 
going back into chapter 14, Paul is dealing with issues of conscience that the church is having to work through, like meat offered to idols and whether or not we observe this day or that day. Long story short, there are people who are stronger in their faith and there are people who are weaker in their faith. And Paul is saying to the people who are stronger in their faith that they need to be gentle with people who have weaker consciences. And the people with weaker consciences need to be not judgmental towards people who think it is okay and have a stronger conscience. Paul doesn't want them to destroy the work of God, the church, over something that is inconsequential. And then Paul turns around in Romans chapter 15 and grounds this idea in the self-sacrifice, the self-sacrificial desire in what Christ did in coming and sacrificing himself, taking on those reproaches and how we're supposed to emulate this. The flow of the passage itself is beautiful, and, and, and we've gone through Romans 15, we've outlined it in that purely exegetical sense, but I would like tonight's sermon to sort of re-outline the text according to a biblical theological pattern, and what I mean by that is, very simply, I want to show how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament in Romans chapter 15, so we're going to sort of move things around a little bit for just, I think, an easier outlining of something a little bit easier to digest but I hope that you find it's uh, faithful to the text here. Um, on your handout there, you'll see that we're going to start in verse 4. Verse 4, um, which I, I have titled the physical temple Israel. Then we'll move into the true temple, which is Christ. And then we'll move into the eschatological temple, the end time temple, the, the last time temple, which is us, the church. And then what does that church do, right? That's, that's sort of where Paul moves. It's not just a static thing that the church exists, but the temple presence going through the church to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to discuss what that looks like a little bit. What is hospitality? We're going to embark on that question by answering that question in verse four. Verse four says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scripture, we might have I'm going to argue that from the Old Testament into the New Testament, the biblical definition of hospitality, as vague as this is, is simply welcoming in. Okay, we're talking about hospitality. It's like, what, is, what does that even mean? What is hospitality? Um, I would define it as welcoming in. This welcoming in can present differently depending on what epic of redemptive history we're in, but it is always a welcoming in. It's an invitation into the family and presence of God. That is a very, very key phrase, particularly presence of God. Welcoming into the presence of God is what hospitality is. Question for you. Can anyone define for me what a temple is? What is temple? When the Bible speaks of a temple, what is that? What, what is always located in a temple? God's presence. Um, in G.K. Beale's, Beale's words, a temple is where God dwells with his people. And we know that God is omnipresent, but there is a specific place where God has decided to commune with humanity, and that is where a temple is. So with that definition in place, where do we think the first temple in the Old Testament is located? What is the very first temple in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. 
right? There's a lot of connections that we can draw off of, but Adam is seen as, in the Genesis narrative, as the first priest figure to guard a temple, this presence of God. And, and this is why some individuals like this book will, will take that the first temple, this first bit of hospitality, is God welcoming people in to the garden. And instead of focusing on the Edenic uh, incident there, I would like to take you to the commands in the law, right? So we, we have this background of Eden, like, okay, we have some temple presence there, and you don't hear much about temple again. You get into the law, and then you start seeing stuff directly about hospitality. The law was very, very clear that Israel was to be hospitable to strangers. Exodus 22, 21, Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. Do not take advantage, oh, sorry. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and shall, you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, so when God instructs Israel to be hospitable to strangers, what is the grounding of the command every time in, in the Old Testament that I can see? Before, in both passages, what does it have? I mean, yes, that is in the other passage. Why? Why does he say that you should be hospitable? Because they themselves were once foreigners. Exactly, that they were once strangers in Egypt themselves. They were once destitute. They were once in a desperate need for mercy to be shown upon them by another people. Thus, God instructs them that when Gentiles come to Israel, they should take care of them and welcome them in. So what exactly then are they welcoming them into? Right? That's the question. You know, you're supposed to welcome them, you're supposed to take care of them, but what are, we, what are we welcoming these people into? They welcomed them into a covenant community where God dwelled with his people. Whether that's in the tabernacle era or whether that's in the temple era, God's presence was in Israel at this time. And when Gentiles would come in, they would welcome them in to the presence of God. As a very brief aside here, I think it's entirely sad that the only time that we hear these verses about being welcoming to others is when it's used in a political sense. As conservatives, I think we should not be scared of using these verses, and I think when, when you hear this coming from a more liberal camp often, you're afraid to even use verses like this, but I don't think we should be afraid of using these verses. As Christians, we should certainly advocate for efficiency, and uh, kindness in the immigration process in order to care for those who are legitimately hurting. Now, with that said, we should also hold these verses with a balanced view of the rest of the Old Testament, recognizing that it was okay for Israel to have strong borders and to be a sovereign nation. Being welcoming to foreigners does not need to be mutually exclusive with an appropriate sense of nationalism and border security in the Old Testament, right? This is to lift these verses out and, and use them beyond their context in what Israel practiced is unfair to those texts. And yet we don't need to be scared to say we should be welcoming to foreigners either. Okay. Now Israel was supposed to be this glorious light to the nations. They were supposed to exalt the wonder of God to all of these people. And beginning in God's covenant with Abraham, God states that he intends to bless all of the nations through the seed of Abraham. And Israel is specifically called upon to be a witness to these nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 7. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
Keep them and do them, for what for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? Hear that phrase, so near to us. When someone saw Israel obeying the law of God as a foreigner, they were supposed to see that the God of Israel was a close God, that he was near to his people. When you came in contact with Israel, you were supposed to have an encounter with the presence of God. Now let me ask you this. If you have a non-Christian over for dinner, are you exposing them to the presence of God in some sense? Yeah, sure, right? If you're a Christian, you, you should be exposing them to, to what it means to have Christ inside of you. But if you have a non-Christian over for dinner, would you feel that it's okay for them to come to church the next time and, and, um, and take communion with you? No. Why? Of course you wouldn't. Um, while that non-believer may have seen the nearness of God, it doesn't mean that they themselves are a part of that covenant community. And this was the case in the Old Testament. If you were going to take the Passover as a sojourner, you couldn't sort of hang out on the fence, right? You couldn't kind of be a part of Israel, but not be a part of Israel. They were supposed to be welcoming to all sojourners, but if you were going to start partaking in things that were specific to the covenant community, then you had to take the covenant sign. You had to truly commit to being a part of that body assembly. And this is exactly what we see in Exodus 12, 38, and 43 through 49. This is the same pattern that we're going to see as we move through into the New Testament too, right? It's not just enough to come into the presence of God and see God from afar. You have to commit to Christ looking forward and become a part of the covenant community in order to enjoy those specific blessings. Exodus 12, 38, 43 through 49. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn, with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person, person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So if you were going to become a part of Israel and you did take the covenant sign, then there wasn't any distinction. You became a part of Israel. You were truly a part of the covenant community. But how did Israel do at that? How, did, how well did Israel do at showcasing God to the nations in a positive way instead of being an object of, their, of God's wrath? Eh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so good, right? Um, was, Adam, was Adam very successful? Or, or Noah, if you believe that the ark was a temple, that's a whole different discussion. Were Adam or Noah really successful at expanding the presence of God to the ends of the earth. No. Was national ethnic Israel successful at showcasing the presence of God to the world? 
know how often they and we fall off into idolatry. And sure, there were some figures like Abraham who successfully prefigured Christ and what it means to be truly hospitable, to truly welcome people in. But by and large, Israel failed at hospitality. Yet we learn from their example. And that is what Paul is saying here in Romans is whatever happened in the Old Testament is written for whose instruction and for whose example? Ours. In the New Covenant, we have their example. So I want you to see, I know we're starting kind of all over the place, right? We're, we're going to start seeing some threads. We're going to start seeing some themes. So I'm going to, let's pull out of the weeds here. And I, w- I want you to pick up a little pattern that I'm going to try to r- repeat a few times. First, Israel were strangers slash slaves in Egypt. They were, they were slaves in a foreign place. Then God comes and sets Israel free from Egypt. Why? For closeness with him. That's, that's the reason. They were going to go out into the wilderness and worship. And that's what we see all through the Old Testament is God wants to be close to his people. And then three, God commands Israel, who does fail, but he commands them to welcome strangers into closeness with him. So they were a stranger. God sets them free. God commands those who he set free to be welcoming to others. Okay, We're starting to see some pattern here. So continuing in our outline in Romans, we see a stark contrast with the true temple, who is Jesus. Verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. How is Jesus described here? Jesus is described as someone who is not seeking to please himself, but is seeking the good of others. So let's follow this pattern once again. How is Christ not seeking his own good, but seeking the good of others? In in a primary sense, Jesus was a stranger in our land here on earth. He left his heavenly domain and came to earth. But um, even in his coming to earth, there's a more specific way in which he was a stranger, right? How does Jesus Christ recapitulate or re... Oh, great. Um... Uh, redo, refollow, do it again, Israel's history, recapitulate. How does he recapitulate Israel's history? He goes down to Egypt, right? And Christ has to flee to Egypt for a little bit, just like who? Israel. And then, what does Matthew say? Up from Egypt, I have brought my son. And so we see this connection between Israel and Christ. So Christ experiences what it's like to be a stranger. The true temple, right? Not the physical temple, But the true temple, Jesus refers to himself this way all the time, true temple experiences what it's like to be a stranger in a a, a twofold sense. Christ then succeeds where Israel failed by being a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to me, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light of the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The Old Testament says about Jesus, it's too light of a thing just for you to restore Israel. We're going to make you restore in the whole world. Okay? And so... If I may use this light metaphor for for a moment here, a lighthouse is designed to guide to something else, land in the case of a lighthouse. But light is supposed to show you the direction in which you're going to travel. Israel was to be a light that points to God. And yet, 
This is where Christ is different. Not only is he the light pointing to God, he is also the presence that is being pointed to. He is both light and presence in one person. And so when we see Christ coming to earth, he, he is the presence of God himself. True temple descended upon Israel in a bodily form. Because that's what it means to be a temple, is to have the presence of God. And this is why Jesus says all of these things that he says in the Gospels regarding himself being a temple. And yet, I'm, I'm going to pick one of them because I can pick all of them, but there is one text that combines being a light and being a temple presence. And it's in John 1, 9 through 14. Listen very closely. He says he is a light in the world, but then he says... He dwelt among us. But the Greek word there is he tabernacled among us, which is, in Israel's history, a presence of the temple, right? So the light has come to the earth, and so has tabernacle presence. Jesus is here. The temple has come. The true light of God shining to the nations has struck Israel. That's John's point in John 1, 9 through 14. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not accept him. But as many as he received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe his name, who were born not of blood, nor of flesh, nor of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, true light, the very presence of God has set foot among the nations on this earth, right? When, when Jesus comes, he is that light to the nations. And so what do we expect to see from Jesus? We expect to see perfect obedience to the law. And part of that is perfect hospitality. And so we see various encounters of hospitality in the Gospels in the sense of Jesus welcoming in individuals into presence with him. And yet to me, the striking thing that is that Jesus is consistently pursuing those who are strangers within society. Right? When you think of Jesus' interaction with people, you don't normally think he's interacting with normal people. He's interacting with you know, the relative oddballs of society. He goes to the Samaritan woman. He goes to the unclean. He goes to the leprous. He goes to the tax collectors. And he goes to Gentiles, Samaritans, like us. Jesus continually goes to the stranger and to the outcast. In a summary from Luke, I believe, he seeks and saves the lost. That was his mission here on earth, is to seek and to save the lost. And a lot of the lost are strangers. Though by all human standards, it would appear that Jesus would come and save someone like the Pharisees, right? We have to prepare the way for the Messiah. We have to become holy, right? Messiah comes, and who does he seek and save? The lost, the lame, the beggars. And he finds people who have nothing on their own to offer in return to him and who know that. The people who think they have something to return in exchange to God are the people he doesn't want. Luke 14, 12 through 24. This is exactly what this parable is teaching about the kingdom of God here is that, you know, the people you'd expect to come are not the ones that end up coming to the feast, but it's the people on the side of the street in the parable that come to Jesus. Luke 14, 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do you do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors 
lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to say those say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please let me be excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. If you would allow me to sort of jump ahead and make an application point right here, Welcome the unlikely. When we think of hospitality, we should be thinking of the unlovable, the poor, the outcast, the person who you would think would never convert to Christianity. I think in evangelism, often we tend to have, I don't know, some evangelism barometer in our head that seems like, oh, they'd be likely to become a Christian. And, and that's, you know, that kind of biases, I think, who we are likely to go to because that barometer can be wrong often. And so in our hospitality, I think that awkwardness is one of the main fears, fear barriers that prevent us from being obedient with this. It's like, I'll make this application that stings me first, be inviting to people that are poor conversationalists, right? I, I, I mean, even if someone doesn't have a nice job or nice money, it's pretty easy to talk with people who are good at talking, right? And, and if someone doesn't have anything for resources, they might still be a cool person. And, you know, we don't mind having someone to like over that. We like being around cool people who aren't awkward uh, interactors. But, man, will we do anything to avoid an awkward interaction? Uh, that, that awkward silence that just sits there and now you're like, I've talked about my five small, point, small talk points and now I don't know what to say and they're certainly not talking back and it's just, you're just sitting there, right? Um, but the person who doesn't know how to interact with others well or how to hold a conversation needs Jesus just as much as the person who knows how to interact well and to have a conversation well. And I pick one possible issue, honestly, because it's probably the one that would be most difficult for me, right? I want to be something specific, not just vague in the sense of welcome people who are unlikely and unlovable. But honestly, broaden out, whatever your hang-up is, you have to get over it. And this is why there is no room for racism, xenophobia, sexism, whatever, within the church, is that we are continually confronted by the fact that Jesus goes to every kind of individual that you can imagine, from prostitute to Pharisee, and offers love and an entrance into the kingdom. I mean, he really does go from the top to the bottom of society without regard for who they are, and extending love to the to the hurting and, and uh, challenging those who are arrogant in, in their recalcitrant unbelief. So when Jesus says in this parable that you will be blessed and repaid at the resurrection of the just 
for inviting those who cannot repay you. I don't want you to think of that just in financial terms, right? That is so easy to think, oh, they can't pay me back for dinner. But, but I, I would like to broaden that just a little bit uh, because we each have a propensity of something that we want to gain in return from people, right? We all want something from people. That's not bad necessarily, but if you can identify what your tendencies are to want from people, then you might, by doing the converse of that, be able to recognize what people group you you aren't as welcoming towards, right? And for me, I'm, I'm drawing the illustration, I tend to gravitate towards people who are good at talking, right? And so I would make the application to myself that maybe I need to be better at reaching out to people who that conversation dies within 30 seconds and learn how to interact with them in a better way. And you can fill in whatever blank you want for people that you struggle to interact with, but maybe that's the exact population that you need to lean into a little bit and learn how to be hospitable to them. Um, so we've established this biblical pattern, I would say, a second time, really. First, Christ was a stranger in Egypt, specifically, but this world in general. He's a stranger to this world from the domain of heaven. But see, this is where the pattern breaks. Right? Jesus is different than Israel, and that's a good thing. Um, Christ, God in human flesh, invites strangers into freedom from sin in, in his kingdom or closeness with him. Right? He's not like Israel who failed to reach out. He is the presence, and he is inviting people into that presence with him. And then third, Christ commands those close to him to welcome those who are strangers. Right? And that's, that's going to come in the disciples' lives pretty quickly here in the gospel. So returning to our outline once again, um, in Romans, verses 5 through 6, we begin to see the eschatological temple. And I'll go ahead and take this one. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to see the eschatological temple of God on display. What that means, um, eschatological just means last things, end time, right? And the, is, uh, the Old Testament, the is Israeli Juda uh, Judaistic faith anticipated a temple presence. And when we come to the New Testament, we some see something very, very interesting. I want to say it's six out of seven of the uses in Paul of the temple are not to a physical structure. He refers to the temple complex in the New Testament as people. And that's a, that's, a, that's a shocking turn, right? I mean, that's something you wouldn't just naturally expect. And, and so I want to introduce you to this concept. Why? Temple is not a building. Temple is nearness and the presence of God, right? We're not, we've never been, I, I want to make that clear. A temple has never been about a building. Building has been important, right? There are details that God wants to include. But temple has never been about God, I'll, this is kind of off the cuff, but remember that one time that uh, God left the temple in the Old Testament? His presence went up and out. How useful was the temple to Israel at that point? Not at all, because the presence had left. The point of the temple is always God. And so if Christ is this true temple, and we are Christ's body, then the church is the temple of God, filled by the presence of God via the Holy Spirit. Paul makes this explicit in 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
By the way, if you're bored to listen to me now, he says destroy the temple, right? Look back in chapter 14, just a few verses back, and you'll see Paul using language about individuals destroying one another. It's the same language. He clearly views destroying one another as destroying the temple. We'll get to that. Um, but we are the end time temple of God. That is what Paul is saying. We'll take it a step further. If we want to continue with this building analogy like the New Testament authors do, we are living stones within the temple of God, and Christ is the cornerstone. Second, uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may claim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are living temple, living stones within this temple, and then Christ, being true temple, is the cornerstone. He is the foundational point on which this temple rests. So when you look back at verses 5 and 6 in Romans chapter 15, it becomes clear what the temple of God is intended to do. God is an encouraging God who grants us endurance so that we have harmony in the body, but that's all great, but why? Why are we supposed to have this harmony? Here's where the henna clause, the, the in order that. What's the point of God being a God of endurance and encouragement? That we might together with one voice, one voice, glorify God. Piper defines glorifying this way. Glorifying means feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, and that give evidence of his supreme greatness, of all his attributes, and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfection. So we're supposed to look at everything that God is and with one voice as a people of God praise him and make much of who he is in a unified fashion. This glorifying behavior makes perfect sense when you think about what happened to every single one of us. Christians are those who recapitulate the pattern established by Christ. As Christians, we were once slaves in spiritual Egypt. We were once in bondage to sin and Satan. We were once strangers to God and the covenants in spiritual Egypt, but a greater Moses has caused a greater exodus that has led us to a new Jerusalem. Okay? A lot of, a lot of words there, right? But you were, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's allegorizing. It's very real, but you were seeing how Israel is a picture, right? Jesus is greater than Moses. The new Jerusalem that we're heading to is greater than the physical Jerusalem. And this is the journey that we are on with Jesus. And we see the exact same pattern for Israel, but because we have been given the Spirit, we are now able to be a true Israel as we are members of the true Israel who has the Spirit of God. We were slaves in a spiritual Egypt to sin and Satan, but God has set us free from this bondage. Why? For closeness with him. And, and at this point, then, it's that we, we exalt in him, right? This is why we glorify God, is because we were, we were saved from this spiritual Egypt. And, and this is where the glorifying becomes the most poignant, is that, wow, God has saved me from all of this, 
And it looks like he's done it with some other people too. And now we come together and we praise God for him being this liberator God who sets us free from our sin. So first, God has been gracious in, uh, gracious to seek another unlikely figure in us Gentiles. As Paul puts it, we were strangers to the covenants, but now have been brought near. Keep noticing this pattern over and over again. Strangers to family. We were once strangers, but we've been made family. Ephesians 2, uh, 12 through 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hear that brought near language again? In the Old Testament, Christ triumphed over Egypt. That's what uh, Jude and, uh, yeah, actually Jude says, that Christ triumphed over Egypt. And in the New Testament, Christ triumphed over sin, death, and Satan. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. You're going to see the same exact trajectory that I've been saying all the way through this Ephesians passage. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of of the commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in 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 himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So that enmity is broken down. We've been made into one body. But remember how in the Old Testament, when you became a member of the covenant community, you weren't a second-rate citizen. Here, the same concept, Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22. Now, that's where Paul finishes. You aren't a second-rate citizen. So now you are a citizen, not strangers, who have become a part of this temple whose foundation is Christ, and Christ is knitting it together, and he is the temple. He's also the foundation of the temple, or actually the apostles are laying that foundation, but Christ is that cornerstone upon which everything is built. Welcome. Hello. Um, When I, this is a great night for this, actually. When I look around this room, I see many, many unlikely members of the kingdom of God. And, and I, would, I would even go so far as to say that the unlikeliness of the vessels in this room is precisely why we have been blessed with such a unique family feel here. Right? It's, it's, because, it's because of this. But, but can I also say this, that contrary to what the modern world would tell you, it is not our diversity that makes us into a good family. Uh, I, would, I would go, uh, a matter of fact, I'd go to the contrary and say, naturally, naturally, our differences alone detract 
from unity. What causes unity is that despite all of these earthly differences, despite all of the ways that this family shouldn't work, despite all of the ways in this room that it's represented that God sought the unlikely, it is our singularity of focus on Jesus that makes us into a family, right? There is no inherent value in being you know, wildly different from each other. What makes it so unique is that it's like you were over here and you were over here and yet you've been brought together with one singular focus and that is why we have one voice and that is really, really cool. The fact that one individual comes from suburbia and the other comes from the ghetto or a white collar background or a blue collar background or whether you've come from substance abuse or never even seeing any substance or whether you've participated in sexually illicit behaviors or um, have been in chase singleness your entire life or whether you're rich or poor or even trivial things like country boy versus city boy those differences would naturally detract from unity and I think that's a logically obvious statement because people gravitate towards people that are like them right that's you go into any social like college you're going into some of these groups right they tend to find the people that are like them the nerds kind of hang out with them the jocks kind of right and the people naturally just section out into their cliques that's normal right but what's unusual is for all those people to come together and for it to work somehow (laughs) right and and, but it, it wouldn't it wouldn't work unless there was a point that they were focusing on and that point is absolutely as romans phrases because of jesus christ that we are all glorifying god with that one voice. Why? Why are we doing that? It's because each and every one of us, doesn't matter where you've, came, where you've come from or what you've done, uh, you have to come to terms with the fact that at some point, we were all in fact strangers from God. And when this reality truly hits, when that reality truly sinks into your soul, you don't look at another stranger of a, of a different stripe and think that you're so much better than them. Right? You don't, you don't think, wow, you know what? I was a stranger in this way and you were a stranger in that way. I'm so much better of a stranger than you. No. You, you think, man, we are all so woefully short of God's standard. That doesn't really matter who we are. And then it's like God parts the Red Sea of our life and God triumphs over this Egypt that you were stuck in. And honestly, you praise God with whoever is standing beside you because you know that all of spiritual Egypt is bad and it doesn't, whether you, doesn't matter whether you came from the mansions of spiritual Egypt or the slums of spiritual Egypt, all of spiritual Egypt is still bondage, right? It's all still slavery to Satan. And when you come through that Red Sea, what do you see Moses doing and the people doing? You see him praising God, right? And that's exactly the same thing that happens in our Exodus. It shouldn't matter and it didn't matter in, in Israel's time and it doesn't matter for us whether you're coming from this sect of Egypt or that sect of Egypt, you're all coming from Egypt and God is saving all of you. And so, yes, you're going to glorify God with one voice, whoever you're standing beside, and you don't have time to care about what clique they are from. The pattern which we've been discussing is yet established once again. We were strangers to God and to the covenants. God invited us in to covenant nearness with him and freed us from bondage to Satan. Then verse 7 completes the typical pattern when Christ commands us to welcome others as he has welcomed us. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Israel pointed to Christ and we point back to Christ. Christ is the center point of this redemptive historical chiasm. Uh, Chiasm, point, point, mirrored point, right? It's A, B, 
A with an apostrophe if you're looking at it, but uh, Christ <laughs> is the center point of this redemptive historical chiasm. And, and while there were some who succeeded at, succeeded at true hospitality in the Old Testament, Israel failed as a whole with this whole hospitality to the nations thing. Christ came on the scene, he succeeds, succeeded where Israel failed at welcoming these strangers in. Now that we are connected with true Israel and have become true Israel ourselves, then we succeed where Israel failed and mimic our corporate head, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's kind of that pattern. But in, in this particular case here, the Greek word for receive has this idea of an active bringing in of something to oneself. Uh, the idea of hospitality, I think Jared has done a nice word search on this, but uh, there's a couple of different words in the New Testament for hospitality, but they all have this root word of xeno in them. Anyone know what that xeno root has? Um, what does it mean to be xenophobic, for instance? foreign, strange, unusual, and that's what this Greek root is saying. There's different words for it, but they all combine it to mean welcoming to that which is strange or loving that which is strange. So the words for hospitality literally mean being a lover of strangers or welcoming to strangers. Hospitality is a requirement for eldership, for widows to be enrolled in the list for support by the church, and by being hospitable, Hebrews says that we sometimes entertain angels unaware, and I would really, uh, I'd love to know what that means, but uh, we don't know what that means. Um, that's a pretty good reason to be hospitable, right? That's his, Paul, whoever, is like, you should be hospitable because, by the way, you might be hosting angels, right? I mean, it's Paul's book to talk about angels as much as he wants. That's my theory anyways. Um, but that's a pretty decent reason to be hospitable. hospitable. But if we work, look back to verse 7 in Romans chapter 15, we, we see that this welcoming of one another results in something. It results in the glory of God. That's why we hospitality, right? That is why we engage in welcoming people is so that God receives this glory. But notice that hospitality serves as a bridge, if you will, between two sections in the text. I think that's very interesting, right? Like if we just look at things in our isolated outline form, we might not catch this, but this hospitality is kind of forming a bridge, obviously to the next verse, because there wasn't verse markings and headings when this was written. Why did Paul transition right to the next words that he, that he writes? Uh, verse 6, we see that the temple of God glorifies with one voice. Verse 7, then we see that we welcome one another to the glory of God. That begs the question to me, how do we glorify God if this is what we're doing? Right? You're welcoming another glorify God. How do you do that? We received a little clue back in verse 3 when it says, when it speaks of Christ taking on our reproach, reproaches. But now we're going to get a little bit deeper look at it, and this is why I've titled it Eschatological Temple Expansion. Dr. G.K. Beale takes this to a depth that I cannot currently take you. I'll give you a very simplified version of it here for tonight. Adam was placed in the first temple. I'd agree with their interpretation that Adam's call to subdue the earth was to expand the garden to the ends of the earth. right? And he was supposed to multiply image bearers. Why? So that there would be more people to worship God. Adam not only didn't do this perfectly, Adam got kicked out of the temple, right? And there's two cherubim set to guard the entrance. Where do you see two cherubim pop up next? The tabernacle, right? So we look at Israel, and the Genesis mandates reiterated to the patriarchs and to Israel. They had their tabernacle. They eventually had their temple. They, too, were to be a blessing to the other nations and to welcome the nations in to the presence of God. Not only did they not do that, they were worshiping the idols of the land in of the land in Zion. What happened to Israel? They got kicked out of the temple presence. They were moved into a captivity just like Adam was. 
But now, let's read verse 2 and verses 8 through 13. Again, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now to verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, and believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now we see that Christ, who is the true temple, has come. And he has not failed. Christ succeeded where Adam, Israel, and the rest failed. In a different sense, Christ has his own version of the Genesis mandate, or the, the Genesis mandate there. What is it? It's to be fruitful and to multiply in the Great Commission, right? If you, if you notice the parallels, it's very similar. Christ is one, and now he's saying, expand, take the temple presence, me, to the ends of the earth and reproduce and produce more image bearers. So make disciples of the nations. Christ's temple, his body, has not failed. And when you look around this room, you can see that the temple has indeed reached to the ends of the earth, right? We're here because the temple came to the ends of the earth. And this is probably about as post-mill as you're gonna catch me sounding, but the Great Commission has not failed. Jesus will build his church, and this temple project will not go unfinished, right? We see that struggle in the Old Testament, too. Temple's unfinished. Where's God? This temple isn't going to go unfinished. Christ will finish building his church. He will see the temple presence go to the nations. God has, however, allowed you to participate in the expansion of this eschatological temple. Hospitality, when defined as a welcoming in, Catch this, is the means by which God has allowed his people to participate in his mission of expanding his temple presence to the ends of the earth. That is amazing, right? Like we get to partner with God on his mission in the world. And so when you have someone over for dinner, the point of the night is not whether the burgers or the chicken is cooked properly. The point is sharing the presence of God with another person. The point is joining in on God's mission that began in the garden and is now completed in you. This is so clearly evidenced in the hospitality of Mary and Martha. One was worried about logistics, but what was the other one focused on? What was the other one worried about? They were focused on, Mary was focused on experiencing the presence of God, the true temple in their living room. Jesus commends Mary for her proper focus because Jesus' presence is always the proper focus. And when, when Jared did this word study for, for the Greek, he found something that struck him a little bit odd. He's like, all of these words are about welcoming strangers, and yet it's also applied to Christians as well. But I think this makes perfect sense when you look at verse 2 in the context of Romans 14.20 and 1 Corinthians 3, which I mentioned earlier. Christians who were once strangers are to welcome and live peaceably with other ex-strangers to continue building the temple in them. When we grow as believers, we help other believers grow. We continue to expand that eschatological temple in them. When you say, oh, you know, brother so-and-so Timmons really been grown in Christ here recently, you're saying the temple has grown deeper in Timmons. Christ's presence is expanding in this earth 
intimate. And so when we edify the believers, we are being hospitable to and welcoming them in to a greater temple presence. And this is, um, this is also true from a different angle. If you look at Matthew 25, when we do good to one of the brothers, we do good to who? To Christ, who is the body himself. He is the temple. And when you develop one stone within the temple, one individual, when you're welcoming to one of the brothers, you're welcoming the temple. You're expanding that temple presence. And when you're destroying the temple, well, Paul doesn't have very favorable things to say about that. Um, beyond that, though, we see that hospitality is how those who were once strangers welcome those who are still strangers to continue expanding the temple in the world. This might mean you're welcoming someone at work. This might mean you're welcoming to someone at church. This might mean you're welcoming them, them in your home. That's fine. I just don't want you to restrict your view of hospitality to only having someone over for dinner. It's a welcoming in to the covenants. That's what hospitality truly is, is welcoming people in. So when our book says they need to experience a shadow of the communion table by breaking bread over your kitchen table, I think this is exactly right because hospitality and welcoming one another is for the glory of God among the nations, right? We are attempting to welcome them in to something that is unique to the family of God. We want them to become a part of the body. So all of the practical applications that we can make from this can easily be arrived at by mimicking how Christ welcomed people around him. So first, first application, and I've already mentioned this, Christ was welcoming to all sorts of people, and thus we should be welcoming to all sorts of people, particularly those who by worldly standards would seem to be the oddballs and the outcast. Secondly, Jesus welcomes us with joy. Therefore, we should likewise welcome one another without grumbling. First Peter 4, 9 through 10. I think that Peter includes this comment about performing hospitality without grumbling because it is truly one of the easiest temptations. Some people overstay their welcome. Some people leave, uh, you know, and make a mess around your house. Some people feel like you're wasting your time on them. It's like, what am I doing here? Um, some people are wasteful with the food and drink that you graciously extend to them when you're on a budget. Um, whatever the case may be, it, it is it is easy to grumble when when we are trying to be hospitable to folks. But I would also add that unless you become a hospitable person now, it does not get easier as you get older. Uh, sure, you might have a nicer place, but things get broken and frustrations grow like barnacles. You get more protective of your stuff, not less, seems to be the trend with age, unless you set a distinct course in your life to say, you know, the, the vase got broken because there was a eight-year-old running around here like a... Well, I, they're running around, and, um, <laughs> um, and you know, they knocked over the vase, right? I mean, if, if you don't set a course for your life now that's going to be a hospitable course, it probably won't get better as you age. And this is, this is unique to me to see this as a qualification to be an elder, but this makes total sense because if the mission of God is at stake in hospitality, right, we're welcoming people in then surely you would want the leaders of the eschatological temple of God to be at least good at welcoming people in to achieve the purpose of temple expansion, right? You, the people who are leading the temple should be somewhat equipped to help expand the temple. So I hope instead of frustration, you find that hospitality, that this look at hospitality causes you to have a fresh remembrance of your deliverance from time in spiritual Egypt. It, it's, it's the ability 
you know, it's so easy to grow judgmental of those who are stuck in Egypt, right? But if we are helping to get into that mess and pull people out, then, then we don't forget what it's like to be stuck in spiritual Egypt ourselves. We are like the cars that God uses to drive people out of spiritual Egypt. And if we can remember how big of a purpose and how big of a mission we are on, then those small and trivial things like them leaving too much food on their plate that you thought was good, but clearly they didn't. They folded it over and put it in the trash upside down so you wouldn't see, right? Those little irritations become small and trivial like they actually are when you when you consider it in in the grander scheme of literally you guys by being hospitable are in joining with God on his mission that he has started in the garden. My third and final application for tonight is that hospit- hosp- uh, hospitality should be missional for now. Okay, Hospitality should be missional for now. There is nothing wrong with hanging out, uh, but the pattern of our hospitality should be more than just a hangout. It should be either edifying the believer or missional to the unbeliever. Christian individuals, Christian families, Christian groups, Christian church, um, they struggle and they die when their pattern is not missional because they are not participating in God's mission to expand the temple and to seek and to save the lost, right? I, I, I hate to stereotype here, but you know, you go to that old country church that has a median age that's 65 and over, and you're like, it, it feels dead in here. And you're like, why does it feel so dead in here? Because they stopped reaching new people. And you're like, oh, is it bad to stop reaching new people? Yes, it is. And that's what I'm trying to argue for here is that if we stop being missional, then we stop participating in God's mission in the world. I know that we're already a little bit long for tonight, but I I just have to give you a little bit of brief exegetical support for this. The Church of Ephesus in Revelation, right? The Church of Ephesus was super doctrinally sound, right? Commended for hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But it was stale and without love, right? Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Listen for some clues that remind you of temple, okay? As you go, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. What does Jesus threaten to do if they don't repent of not loving people in God? What does he threaten to do? What does that, what does that have to say? Take away the lampstand. Take away the lampstand. That's an odd threat, right? What is that supposed to mean? Where is a lampstand found? Where is the menorah found in the Old Testament? In the temple. In the temple. So what is Jesus threatening to do? He's threatening to take away his temple presence from the church. He says that you're an unrepentant church my presence will be gone. That's a very big threat, right? That's huge. That's 
unbelievable. He says, I'm going to remove you from being an eschatological temple if you don't repent. But well, let's, let's, let's think about this. What does a lampstand look like? You know, you've ever, if you've ever been to Israel or seen a menorah, what does it kind of look like? It kind of looks like a tree, right? Got the seven different branches going out. Com some commentators, I, I would tend to agree with them, would say that this menorah, the Old Testament lampstand, was modeled after the tree of life in Eden. And what does Jesus promise those who overcome, who do repent? He promises them what? The tree of life. And where do you see that again in Revelation? When Jesus is the temple in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is saying that if you overcome, you will be welcome to partake in the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth, where the temple presence resides forever on this earth, fully, consummately. You will be there. But if you don't repent, if you don't turn from this sin, then you will not be in my temple presence. I will take that away. All right, so we see a very striking like, rebuke here to say that if you're not loving God and people and repenting and doing the first works, then my presence is gone from that assembly. Right? And that's, this is what I want to say here. At Koine, we tend to be very, very good at edifying believers. Right? I, I really do believe that. We have grown so much over the years. But we are less with witnessing to the lost. However, we are taking some steps behind the scenes to change that long term. And so what I wish to say for the time being is this, is that growth and expansion is good. We have a bad taste for numerical growth because in America particularly, I think, because of the pride that has seeped in with so many churches about numbers. And I think that's a fair critique, right? That is, that's wrong. Right? That is wrong because if we just focus on the bigger the church, the better it is. Right? That's not always true. But I will say this. I hope that Koinonia grows and expands. I hope Koinonia changes. And I hope that we have new faces of young believers to be developed and unbelievers to be converted around here. Sure, I want the core values of Koinonia to stay the same, of course. But I certainly hope that Koinonia does not look the same in two years as it does today. And I will say this, if Koinonia looks the exact same in two years as it does today, then we failed, right? We have failed and we are not in sync with the mission of God in the world. So please then, as, as we from the leadership, it's not my strength, right? I'm, and this is not where I'm best, right? As we push for more en engagement with the world, do not oppose increased outreach efforts as they come in the future here um, hopefully i really do hope that we can improve in that area do not resist people because they are not new do not um, have do not encourage a culture here that is retreating and isolationist and holding back from the world but rather encourage us to go to battle and to win individuals for the lord that the lord has for us in this city right paul speaks like i'm going to go into that city and i'm going to get as many people that the lord has for us christ church will have expansion and you just never know when god is going to allow you to participate in that harvest with him and so I hope that over the next few years we do change. I hope things expand, and I hope we keep all those same core values, but we are ever more participating in God's mission. And I hope that no one here opposes reaching out to people. We need to be. This is what God's mission is in the world. I did say, though, that hospitality should be missional for now, right? Right now we are working to expand the presence of God in the world, and that is because it is still day, so to speak. But can I tell you this? That it will not always be 
day. There is coming night when no man can work, as Jesus says. Someday, God's presence will fill the whole earth, and sin and death will be fully and finally defeated, and what is done in this world will be final. It will be finished. Those who are saved are saved, and those who are lost are permanently lost. It is fixed for eternity. But at that point, then hospitality will change from a transient welcome in to a permanent welcome home, right? That is when it changes, right? Right now, hospitality is missional. We are going to the nations to win, to seek and save the lost. But someday, that'll change, right? And, and God will have redeemed his people. His presence will fill the whole earth. The garden mission of Adam will be successful. What Israel was supposed to do will be fully consummated because Christ and his church has won the day. And we will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And then it will be that final welcome home and take your rest. But right now, we're supposed to be working. And so our hope is that we can continue to engage ever more in this work. Let's close with this quote from John Piper, and thanks for your eight minutes of grace. I appreciate it. Um, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, right? That's a striking statement. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, millions, or excuse me, missions will be no more, right? Hospitality is missional for now. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then Josh and Chloe have two songs for us tonight. Um, they'll be leading and announcing all that, but I'm going to pray, and then we'll move on with the evening. Father, I want to thank you for... Um, the opportunity to discuss hospitality in a different way here tonight. Uh, I pray that here at Koinonia, it's a, it was a long way to get to it, God, but I pray that we take away, not just cognitively, but also as we think from a leadership standpoint and then every single individual here, that we do a better job at engaging with the world around us, that we care for the lost, that we, we find the people that are unlovable and show them love in family and bring them in from strangers to be family within the covenant community of God and to enjoy all the rich blessings that you have provided for us and that you have won on your own and that we get to follow in the steps of. So, Father, we thank you for purposing this, Christ. We thank you for accomplishing it. And then, Spirit, we thank you for applying it in our hearts and in the hearts of those who are yet to be saved. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, we are going to sing, oh, how good it is. Oh, how good it is, Josh. Yeah. She called back because when your parents came, the Bluetooth connected to their car. So she told me.